History doesn't always repeat itself. That's why we need to write more things down, take pictures, create memories, build those archives and be curious readers. It's one of the reasons why I created this podcast, for black writers in particular. I want to contribute to the story and collective memory of who we are, where we come from and potentially reveal more about where we are headed. I'm your host Yolante Falhidmi, a journalist who advocates for innovation and storytelling and this is Black Prose, the podcast where black writers talk amongst themselves. I can't remember the first time I came across a Nafiok Neef Ekpodum, but I do remember how reading his prose made me feel. It's always rich yet delicate, concise yet fluid, illuminating yet intimate. Neef is an award-winning freelance writer and storyteller dedicated to exploring and documenting culture in Britain. He writes long-form essays and profiles for publications such as The Guardian and GQ and has now written a vivid and rhythmic cultural history of British rap, grime and identity called Where We Come From, which is out now. Why did you want to write a social history about rap and grime in the UK? There's so many different reasons, but one of the main drivers and inspirations I had for it always comes down to, I think, growing up and when I got into literature, I've read like a lot of narrative nonfiction, like creative nonfiction, which essentially looks to like humanize people's everyday lives and takes you like deep into like a community in like rural America or in New York City or or in Brazil or in India and, and then looks at the everyday lives of the people there and almost brings you closer to them in that way, in the same way fiction does, but it's actually real, real life. And I always looked at that and thought, oh, I'd love to do a version of this that existed for um, the, a the music that I love and the communities that the music comes from so that was like always like the thing ringing in the back of my head is like I'd love to like kind of render these lives in a with real humanity in a way that I don't often think we were seeing at the time with like how British rap and grime and stuff has been covered by British press over historically over like 10, 20 years and you go back to like Garage and Jungle and it's all the same kind of um, quite negative or quite judgmental at times and I really wanted to write a book that showed the people and the communities for who they actually are and showed like the experiences that actually birthed the musicians and the music too. And not even just the musicians, the people that are all around the music, music managers, DJs, A&Rs, these kind of things. So that was that was the probably the biggest reason. And where do you think the negative connotation comes from, especially when it comes to the genre and the people that make it up? I think it's like a lack of understanding. I think lack of understanding, lack of empathy, I think there's a thing in the UK sometimes where <laughs> people can like bury their head in the sand a little bit about what's actually going on. So I remember when Giggs was coming up and the amount of pushback he was getting uh, from all elements of the press and same with these Rascal, but I think there was a thing that at that time, like American hip hop was probably more accepted in the UK than it ever had been. And I do think part of that was because it was like at a distance, it was kind of over there. So even though they're talking about sometimes quite bleak things, it was like, oh, this isn't necessarily our issue so we can enjoy it from a distance. And then you have someone like Giggs from Peckham talking like saying, this is happening in like the capital city. And I think that made like people uncomfortable in a lot of ways. Almost like not wanting to accept that this was happening. Uh, some of these experiences were happening in Britain on British streets, I think is where some of the lack of empathy and understanding comes from. And I think also just people being walled off from how people are living, how like black communities are living, working class communities are living. I think there's almost like a bit of an alternate reality that you exist in at times when your existence feels so separate from what the rest of the country is experiencing. And I think that disconnect, I think also leads to that lack of empathy. And there's also just like racism as well. Like the, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all, yeah, that's always there. So. so your debut book is called Where We Come From. And I think what I liked about it is where you started. Mm. So you first of all kind of took us backstage in a show and then you then went into like Birmingham and the Midlands. Why was that important for you to start there and kind of journey through um, different parts of the UK? Mm. So yeah, the intro was like, I think that was the last thing I wrote. I was like scratching my head for the intro for so long. I couldn't figure out like what should set the tone for this book because as you say, it goes across the UK, it goes through multiple different decades and generations. And I was like, what captures like the essence and the spirit of a lot of these people's stories that are being told? And then 
I settled on that intro is backstage at Giggs' show in Kentish Town, which I think is the first show that he was allowed to perform in London in 2015, after obviously years and years of being a musician, but um, being blocked, having shows cancelled last minute, having tours pulled. And that was the first time he was able to perform in front of his hometown crowd, essentially. And then backstage with his manager and all of these other musicians who have kind of been on that journey with him, they say like a, a prayer for to bless the show as they're about to go out uh, and a prayer for those who couldn't be there with them. Some were dead, some were in jail and all of these things. So I thought that was quite a powerful way to start because I think it showed the sacrifice that it had taken for people to get to that point, for him to get to that point. And I think it also showed the persistence that they'd kept going despite all of those barriers and obstacles and were now about to be able to enjoy their career as musicians. And I think that was quite a beautiful thing. And I think also even just looking at the makeup of that room and I know Giggs is, I think, part Bayesian, part Jamaican. Um, his manager Buck is Ghanaian, I believe. And then there were all of these other different ethnicities and nationalities. And I thought that is really reflective of um, what British rap is and what black British community is. So that was like a big reason why I started there. Then we jumped straight into into Birmingham, as you say, in like the 60s, the 50s, like starting with the Windrush generation, essentially. And that was a big thing because I wanted to show that the sometimes we talk about like black British culture almost in isolation and not necessarily talking about how much of it is linked to what has happened before us, especially in a contemporary sense anyway. Like I'm sure we know there's been black people in Britain from like the Romans, but I was more interested in like this like last 70, 80 years, that chain and lineage of people that has led us to where we are today. I really wanted to explore that because I felt like not only is the music a product of that, but we're all products of that. Like those generations have really shaped um, the country and built communities for black people to live in. So I thought that was really important to start there and to show that though someone like Stormzy or Dave or Giggs is massive now, that didn't just happen overnight. That's been like a long process of different people kind of planting roots in the soil for for generations to exist now. When would you say you first felt like a writer? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I started writing in uni. In I went to University of East Anglia. I graduated 2013. And then I did law at uni. And <laughs> Me like, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, it was like one of those like African parents, like my mum's from Cameroon, my dad's from Nigeria, want you to have a, like a good degree. And so I started doing law and then within the first two weeks, I hated law. So I was like, I, I can't do this. And then I think that really then, because I was doing something I hated for three years, I think that pushed me to like try and do something that I liked. And then when I just started writing for fun in uni, like I was writing about like football, tactics and stuff like that and then like music blogs and stuff like that and then writing for link up tv i feel like i felt i think i felt like a writer then i definitely didn't have like the tools to maybe express myself in the way that i wanted to but i felt like i always felt once i discovered like oh this is the thing that i love that i will do this without even any thought of money attached like if i was there's no there's almost no sense of retirement from this for me i think it's something i'd continue to do regardless even if i wasn't even putting out work i'd still write because i just love to express myself that way and once i found that in uni i feel like that is when i first felt like a writer there's probably the big moment was when i was my last year of uni i finished my exams and then we Did you continue doing law yeah i continued doing law okay. because the, I think the next year was the year when the fees trebled. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to stick this one out. So I stuck it out. Uh, and then in my last year, I finished my exams. And in the last week, they were like telling people to go to go to see your careers counsellor. And I'd never seen the careers counsellor until that point. And then I went to see her. And then she was also like, what do you want to do when you get out? And I was like, uh, I only really enjoyed two of these law modules. I could look at that. And then she was like, what else are you doing? I was like, oh, well, I'm writing for this platform called Link Up TV. It's like really fun. Um, I'm getting to interview some of the musicians that I really like too and getting to talk about the music. And I spoke about that for like half an hour. And then when it got to the end of the session, she was yeah. like, you know, the only time you smiled in this session was when you were talking about writing. So you should probably think about doing that. And that's probably like when the light bulb clicks in my head, like, okay, I want to do that. And I think there's also then like all moments along the way that kind of reaffirm that or you lose your way a little bit and you kind of come back to it. So I definitely had those um, moments as well. But that's kind of when I felt like a writer in that sense. And what about writing brings you so much joy that in that meeting you were smiling so much? <laughs> Feeling like I've seen something, especially with nonfiction anyway, feeling like I've seen something or I've experienced something that I feel um, was important and left the etch in history for 
just for people in general and feeling like the feeling of wanting to like put that into concrete on a page almost to make that live forever I think is definitely a big part of it and then I think on a history sense it's probably like when I think about like especially like black history a lot of it exists like orally in a sense even like when you think about when I talk to my mum or my aunties and stuff like that about their own stories a lot of that isn't written down anywhere and to be able to like start capturing a lot of these stories and putting them into words was definitely a big part of it too. And then I think also there's just actually like the words themselves. Like I love like the, f the fabric of words. It sounds yeah. strange, but I love that. Like the rhythm of words, like how you can make words like sing with each other on a page and like the rhythm and bounce you can find on a page, like expressing myself in that way is probably, yeah, that brings me like a lot of satisfaction and joy. Do you prefer writing narrative nonfiction more than fiction? It's, in, I've, it's interesting because I've never written fiction yet, yet, but I say it soon. But, uh, but I read fiction more than I read nonfiction. I feel like I was always pulling from fiction more than I was pulling from nonfiction. Even with the book, someone asked me the other day, like, what music books were you reading? I was like, I didn't actually read any music books. Really? I, can t I read one. I read um, Hanif Adurakib's A Little Devil in America, which is, he's a poet essentially, but he then wrote about music. So it's like very poetic. Outside of that, I didn't read any music books. I just read fiction and narrative nonfiction. So I feel like the fiction has always been a big thing for me in terms of being able to learn how to to write the interior of people's lives, like in a piece of journalism or in a book. So I, I would say that I'm more comfortable writing narrative nonfiction. I feel like that's like the kind of class of people I belong to, like the school of people I belong to at the minute. But I'm definitely excited to write fiction at some stage because I feel like it's not that far a leap. And I feel like I've been pulling from fiction so much in my writing anyway that I'm excited to see kind of express myself in that way too because nonfiction does have like constraints because you have to, no matter how like vividly you want to write, you have to stick to the facts of what's happened. Okay. So I'm looking forward to in fiction being able Making to like, up. Yeah, yeah, make things up, break out of that a little bit, which I think will be nice. Yeah, because I feel like the book reads like a novel. I think that's why mm. I enjoyed it a lot. I think there was one point where I was reading it, but I was coming off the train, so I didn't, I don't normally read and walk, but I was reading and walking. <laughs> and it felt like fiction, because I read more fiction than nonfiction. I think right, nonfiction yeah, has yeah. a bad rep. Most nonfiction is written very straight and very... Mm. When you think about nonfiction, you think about self-help books or history yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. But the way that this is written is very colourful and mm. creative and it pulls the reader in. So you feel like you're there. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. That means a lot. That's like the best compliment I can oh. get. That was <laughs> That's definitely what I was trying to do is to make you... F um, I didn't want to write like a biographical account of the music. Like it started in 1986 with this. I wanted to show people who had lived the music and bring you into their lives and fiction is like kind of the only way to do that so definitely pulled from fiction a lot in that sense and I think that was definitely the aim was to try and bring a narrative essentially into yeah. non-fiction but then for me to then bring it into music and especially into this music as well so now <laughs> thank you for that that's okay um you're very pleased when you had Kano's Made in the Manor um one of the lyrics from his song the song is called something seashells. Oh, yeah, seashells in the yeah, east. Yeah, seashells in the east. And the beginning of your book has like lyrics from that song. And you mentioned as well that it, it illustrates a the theme of the book. Mm. But why was it so important for that to be at the beginning to set the scene? Yeah, first, Kanan's my favourite artist, first of all. So I think that was part of it. But also I listened to, <clears throat> there was certain music I listened to while I was writing the book. Whilst researching the book and whilst doing the interviews like across the country and then whilst writing it as well. And he's always an artist I'm always drawn to because he's like very poetic in his his work. Like it almost feels like that could be a novel in its, in its own sense when you listen to Made in the Manor. Or Who Does All Summer, those are like very vivid and rich pieces of work. But then I also think that lyrics specifically, the man out throwing bricks at glass ceilings, do or die, they, he who dreams of open eyes is alive. I feel like that really represents the three main stories in the book, a guy called Phil from um, Cardiff, Desper from the West Midlands and a cadet from South London. I feel like that really represents like the essence of who they were as well and what their stories represent, like that essential persistence in the face of not knowing something's going to pay off but going at it anyway, like the idea of throwing bricks at glass ceilings, I think really resonated with me for a lot of the stories I was hearing was people ultimately taking shots in the dark, like starting music careers on a whim with no framework that this is going to be successful or this is something that you're going to be able to make a living off, but trying it anyway. And I think that kept coming up everywhere I'd go to 
all through London, Walsall, Birmingham, West Bromwich, over to Coventry, then into Wales, Cardiff, Newport, the South Wales Valleys, like everyone was repeating this theme and I was like, okay, that feels like a very fitting way to introduce people into the book. And also just to, I almost like not throw people off a little bit, but I was very conscious that it's a music book, but then there's also like a whole other layer to it, as you were kind yeah. of saying. So I wanted to kind of almost jolt people so that when they read that, it kind of leaves a question in their mind about what they're entering into because it's quite a specific Kano quote to pick. Yeah. I think there were so many different people and I also liked how you weaved in stories of different people like one off the back of the other sort of thing. Okay. And one of the people that I really enjoyed was Cecil Morris. Even mm -hmm. though his part was, wasn't as long as the other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just loved his defiance. Yeah, It was yeah. like, okay, if you want to shut my radio station down, I'm going to build another one. Mm. What would you say you've learned from him? Yeah, definitely that. Because, um, yeah, he started this radio station, PCRL, in Birmingham in the 70s, in the 80s, right around, like, the huge Handsworth riots that were happening at the time. And he didn't want he didn't want to start a station essentially initially he went to the bbc and the other station in birmingham at the time and said can you just give us a, like a reggae show um because there's a big population of caribbean people in birmingham now and we're not getting to hear our music essentially and they essentially like laughed in his face essentially said no um and then he decided to just start pirate radio stations by himself and i think was pulled down by the DTI who then go, who were like regulating all the pipe radio stations all the, at the time and like kind of pulling them off air. I think he said over like, I think it was over 500 times or something like that. Um, and I was like, wow, like he was doing that not for necessarily for commercial gain, but just so his people could have a space for them to enjoy themselves, but also like a space for community as well. And that was something I definitely picked up because I think obviously naturally as music, gets more profitable there's more of a commercial angle to it and I guess it becomes when people think of it more of as a, as a career I guess there is like a monetary element to it which is fine but then hearing his stories about what it took to even get to that place like some of the sacrifices people were literally doing things just for the love of their own people like I think on his radio station they'd of course like have all of these different shows like reggae and whatnot but they'd also like air um, if somebody passed away in the community they'd mention that when the funeral was going to be because so like family members around the region could be able to hear that and be able to attend. So it was like a real holding space for people as well. And I think that was like really special to hear. And also one thing I really got from him as well was being, as I said, my parents were West African, so came to the country slightly later. So I never realised I never actually sat down with someone of that Windrush generation and who's and hear them speak about what their life was actually like in England um, at that time. And so that was like quite a humbling thing to be able to do when he was kind of talking me through all of the, what life was like for him essentially coming from Jamaica at that time. And I think the really beautiful thing that came from that was experiencing like Black Britain in that way, because I think it's something like I've spoken about in my work before and it's spoken about a lot in general, but then actually getting to go to like an older Jamaican man's house and then us from completely different countries, but still have that sense of um, kinship. And whilst I'm listening to him, was quite a beautiful thing as well, because I felt like, oh, okay, this is actually what it actually is, if that makes sense. And for so many people, even when you think about music in general, it's almost something that saved so many people from yeah, doing things yeah. or it reminds people of places that they've been to. Mm. How would you say that music has been like a salvation for you? Like, what has it saved you from? Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think music is the one of the most central things in my life, I'd say. I feel like I always, even if I'm not listening to music, I'm like, have music in my head somewhere. Yeah. And I think the beauty of that, I think, I think the big thing is like, it's kind of given me like a career. Like, I don't think I would have had a career without a, a lot of the sacrifices I'm mentioning. It's given me a space to be able to talk about the music I love and then by extension, talk about... Um, the communities that have birthed the music, but then has given me uh, like a like a livelihood in that sense. I think that that's, that's something I think of quite often is that that wouldn't exist. Like before I was freelancing, I was working for SPTV. I worked for SPTV for a year and a half. And that was like my second music job. I worked, before that I worked at the Mobos. So it's like all of these institutions that have been built up through music and through people's love for music gave me like an access point to be able to then express and explore my own passions and interests and then turn that into a livelihood, which is something that is not lost to me. And especially a place like SBTV, 
I've got so many friends who passed through that place and have gone on to do really successful things in all different parts of the musical media space. And that was like a real foot in the door for people to be able to almost explore your creativity, like unburdened in that sense. Was there any point in your career so far where you've wanted to give up? It's been it's been challenging at times, but I've never wanted to give up. I think that comes back to what I was saying about writing, almost seeing it as more than like a career. So I just, I'd like physically don't know what I would do if I wasn't doing that, if that makes sense. Like I feel like that's there's such a thing in me of like wanting to express um, myself in that way that I can't see myself not doing it. I know like how unhappy that would make me. And I've been, there's been times when I've kind of strayed from that and realized like, okay, I need to come back to this again. So there hasn't been times where I've wanted to give up. And I think maybe because I, yeah, I love writing that much and I read that much and I do write that much um, and I practice that much. That is such a central part of my life. But there's definitely been like, it's definitely been difficult at times in terms of how do you navigate this like as a career and how do you make sure, even like writing the book, like, how do I get to travel the country and give these people the attention and all these stories the time that they deserve whilst making sure that I'm like making a livelihood essentially and um, working consistently too. So like balancing those two things has been difficult. And then obviously media at times and journalism is can be a tough space to get into. So I think that's probably like at the beginning is probably where it was hardest like from uni time to like maybe 2019, like when you're really trying to chip away at what feels like a closed door that was probably the hardest time but I think I'm quite stubborn as well so <laughs> I feel like that helped in terms of um seeing that through and how would you say you started to chip away and get into journalism after uni I was freelancing for link up tv which was like a little entry point but then I did an internship at this marketing agency for a year and then after that I kind of I was writing I was that's how I knew I was when I look back at it that's how I knew I was obsessed <laughs> with it because at my lunch break I'd then like be just going to read like magazine articles and then after work I'd be like gotta go I've got an interview in I don't know Hackney I've got an interview yeah. in somewhere else and I just leave straight away but um I wasn't writing enough I didn't think and so then I went traveling for like three months and then that's when I was like, had some time to myself to actually think like, what do I actually want to do with my life? Like, what do I actually, um, how do I actually enjoy spending my time and how, what do I want to do with that going forward? And that's when I was like, okay, no, you need to like focus properly on writing. So when I got back, um, that's when I started freelancing that I managed to get start working at SPTV but what I did was like I guess just like the art of just being annoying it's like with <laughs> editors with editors um, when I was first trying to pitch to like The Guardian and GQ and these and Hunger Magazine and a lot of these places I first started at I think even to work at SPTV it's like A like I'd just be very annoying like I'd send my pitches on like Monday morning queue them up Monday morning and then the next Monday I haven't heard back. I just send the email again. And I did, literally legit did that for like 10 weeks in a row until <laughs> the wow. editor responded and was like, okay, this pitch isn't quite right, but we've got something else for you. And I think just keeping yourself top of mind that way, like was a really, really big thing in kind of getting a foot in the door. And then I think also like really diving in on my own interests. I think obviously part of it is timing. Like at that time, 2016, 2015, obviously Black British music was starting, was on an incline. And then I felt like I had a unique perspective on it in a lot of these publications that maybe they were missing or didn't have. And so I think there was the timing element of that. But then it was also me diving into that and saying like, this is like what I'd love to write about. This is like, I feel like the value I bring to the publications and mentioning that to editors, but also trying to showcase that in the work that I was sending sending them. So it was a bit of both. Those, those were like kind of like the avenues um, in, I would say. What would you tell people who are afraid to have a niche? So when I first started in journalism, mm. I was told not to have a niche. Right. I was told to be able to do everything. And even like what I do now, I, even though it's like lifestyle features journalism, mm. it's still everything. Yeah, yeah, Although yeah. I have my interests, what would you say are the pros and cons of having a niche in your writing? It goes back to like thinking like, what do you want out of your career? Which I guess can be hard for people to think about, especially when you're young, but trying to think about that as much as possible, because I think that will then determine like what road you take. So I knew that I wanted to write books. I knew that I wanted to write a book of this form. And so I knew that, okay, the road for me to get there would be to then start writing pieces that kind of showcase that. But I also think that in the writing that I was reading, the one thing that shone through wasn't just like the quality of it, but was like the attention to detail and like the passion for it. And I think like, you can 
you, not that you can only, but I think like when you're writing about something, you have a, like a deep interest in naturally you're going to push yourself a bit further at times like you're going to probably research a little bit more you're going to try and get better your craft a little bit more um you're going to spend a little longer on the piece and that kind of thing so that's what I kind of found when I was writing my early pieces was that I would spend a lot of time on them just because I was not even just for the readers or for the editors just for me because I enjoyed the process so much I don't think I would have been able to do that if I was writing about something completely far-flung to something that wasn't that something I wasn't interested in so I think that's the benefit of having a niche and that it does push you and I think also it does give you like a, a unique point of view on something um, which I then found that when people were trying to understand different parts of it, it would be British music black British music or even like black football culture and football culture and that kind of thing which I'm really into as well people would be coming to me because oh like we've seen you've written about this before or I read this piece and it showed like an expertise in this can you write about something similar so I, that's what I kind of started to notice that ah oh, people are there's a hunger for this kind of stuff to be understood and I guess I was in a place where I was able to like kind of digest that and translate that in a way that was like the value of having a niche for me and you've also started to pivot a bit into like screen mm. TV music consulting how would you say that innovation and storytelling has helped you kind of broaden your own career and just the way you write and approach stories yes that's been like it's been so interesting actually because yeah i've been doing like some music consultancy i did music consultancy on the show champion which came out um on bbc one i think it's on netflix now as well um and i've been doing like some documentary stuff as well but i think the interesting thing is that the big interest that i have away from even just music and even journalism and writing it is like story as a whole so i feel like when we talk about niches again, I think that was one of my niches that came through, which I didn't even realise until people started asking me to do stuff, was that, because I'm so interested in like the structure of a story, like how do you, how do you physically structure a story and, and make it work in a way that feels seamless? And to learn about that, I was of course, reading a lot of journalism craft books, a lot of fiction craft books about how to craft stories. But then I'd start reading and watching stuff about how do you craft TV or how do you craft film? Because I thought some of the lessons were kind of transferable. And so in doing that, um, people then started to approach me like, oh, do you want to like help me shape the story for this documentary? Or I've got a, um, a podcast that I'm working on. Can you sh shape the story? A narrative podcast. Can you shape the narrative with me for that? Which is quite an interesting thing. But I think the best thing I've learned about it is almost like seeing story from a different angle because like books are so long and um, there's so many words in them yeah. that the, story, the structure is, the structure is all similar depending on the, the medium, but a book structure has to be so specific because there's so much going on. Whereas I feel like doing, looking at structure and learning about structure in, and story in different mediums, I think helps because you get to see it from a distance almost. And um, because things move a lot quicker, you kind of have to move at that pace. Whereas a book, you have like three, four, five years, but it, for like um, a documentary, you might have a few months. So it kind of forces you to quicken your process a little bit, which was quite good because deadlines are good <laughs> are a good thing as well I would say just going back on to like the whole thing about giving up in the book as you mentioned that cadet is one of the key mm. black people in the book and there was a bit where you spoke about him achieving the British dream mm. and I was just thinking about we don't really talk about the British dream we talk yeah, about the American yeah. dream how do you say it differs that was something I was thinking about a lot because so much of hip-hop and rap is essentially, American hip-hop anyway, is rooted in the American dream. It's like the epitome of that idea of um, you take nothing and make something from it. And that is, of course, flawed. As we've seen, America has many flaws in many ways and that dream isn't necessarily attainable by all people or has not been attained by all people. But it definitely made me think like that mindset has clearly drifted into the UK. And I think there is obviously like an immigrant mindset mentality there that feeds into it so I was in the early stages of the book I was thinking to myself before I even written anything I was thinking to myself like what is the version of that because all of these people are clearly chasing something mm. what does that represent and if there was a British dream what would that be and what are people striving for um in their lives in that make if that makes sense and so I, put, I called it the British dream which is like kind of like the core of the almost like the soul of the book in that way to kind of show that it wasn't necessarily, as we say, like Cadet, he, on the face of it, I guess, like it was, he really wanted, had a burning desire to be a really successful musician and he became a really successful musician. But when you look deeper into his story, like 
the British Dream could also was really about him using music to heal the relationships with his family, with his mum, with his dad, um, with his cousin, and these kind of things, and to be able to almost like examine himself in a way that even therapy and stuff couldn't. So I thought like that is the British Dream in a rap context. Um, for someone like Despa from the West Midlands, it was. I guess like again on the face of it, which is part of structure thing again on the face of it, on the surface of it, he wants to build like a successful music business and whatnot. But the real core essence of his story is that through music, he was able to almost rebuild the family that he never had essentially, or that he lost quite early on in his life. And so when I was thinking about the British dream, I was thinking the role music plays in people's lives and the role rappers played in a lot of these people's lives quite radically isn't necessarily like the huge thing of, our success, like you got loads of number ones and all of this, it was like, you were able to change your life in a lot more personal, but a lot more dramatic ways. And that was kind of the British dream for me. Is there anyone's career that you're jealous of? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say who would, I, there's definitely people's careers that I look at. I'm like, that I've kind of been following. Like, I feel <laughs> like I'm just, I'm like, okay, they did that. Okay, this is what I'm, gonna do. I'm yeah. doing that. I would say like, when I look at um, Ta-Nehisi Coates in America, what I'm trying to do, I feel like I'm just following like his blueprint of, of course, started in nonfiction, but then has now written fiction, but has then he wrote like a Black Panther comics uh, series run and all of these different things. He just wrote like a, the for the last Black Panther film, he wrote like this whole narrative podcast with Ryan Coogler. So him just using story and all of these different mediums, but starting from nonfiction is something I'm definitely like, that's what I want to do essentially. So I feel like that, um, he's definitely someone I look to massively and is like a massive inspiration in that sense too and then i think the other people i look at is just like people who i think have like achieved like perfection in there like some books when you read like okay like this is like a perfect <laughs> this is like a perfect book i'm like okay any yeah, any examples there was a few i read there's one i read um whilst writing the book called e thank you for your service by this guy called david finkel and he's like an american journalist and it's narrative non-fiction again but it's uh covers the, the his first book called the good the good soldiers the good boys he went to l kind of live with this um platoon serve american platoon serving in afghanistan and he followed their lives for the whole of their tenure there and then the second book thank you for your service which i think is like a perfect book kind of picks up when they return to america so and it follows the, the soldiers lives as they try to essentially recover from being in a war and he really follows them over like years, follows their family's lives and really puts those stories like quite intimately into the book. And I was like, wow. I was like, how did you even do that? When I read the book, I was like, how did you, how did you do, <laughs> how did you do this? This is, this is like so beautifully done. So like tenderly written, um, but then so like rigorous as well. And like, so journalistically rigorous as well. I was like, yeah, this is, um, this is like, perfection I, would say. I see what you mean by how writing is almost like fabric when mm. you describe it like that yeah yeah it's so it's so tangible even though it's just words yeah yeah but yeah like how it makes you feel is what makes it real i guess yeah no definitely i feel like it's such a strange thing where as you say like it can make you feel and i think the best writers i think are able to combine like a not fiction anyway like a serious subject but then make it like very engaging as well and i think obviously your word selection has so much to do with that which that's why i think it is like yeah it's like a magic thing in a way like if you can figure that out who would you like to thank for your success so far Ooh. <laughs> uh i'll definitely thank um my mum for sure she definitely was one of the reasons i got into reading um and writing as a kid like she would give me loads of books same with my dad my dad gave me a lot of books growing up as well I'll definitely thank them. And then I'll definitely thank the people who kind of carved a lane for even like our generation of creatives to exist in. So I definitely thank a lot of those people too. People like Cecil Morris, people like Giggs, people, all of these musicians in front of the scenes, behind the scenes, um, who have really made that possible. I definitely really thank them. I worked at, as I said, I worked at SBTV. Jamal Edwards is such a big part of that um, in terms of creating a dream for people to not just make music, but to exist in all of the other bits that surround music and media too. So I think all of those people who like help to chip away, I think I definitely am very, yeah, very thankful for. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So the next section of the podcast mm. is where I ask you questions more specifically about the writing craft okay, we've yeah, we sort yeah. of spoken a bit about yeah, it yeah. but I just had like more like detailed questions I wanted mm. to ask you um, how did you go about deciding the chapter names because I feel like they were very creative and they all told a story within themselves yeah the, yeah definitely I was definitely thinking about always thinking about flow of story from top to bottom so so I like definitely that was a long process like some of them are named renamed renamed swapped around and this kind of thing but I wanted to it to be that if you read the chapter names just by themselves when you open like the contents page it almost tells its own story there um, especially with like the different parts as well you get the idea that we're going from one space from one time period to another um, from beginning to end essentially and then also there's like some like some are like um Easter eggs in there because some of them are named after songs like famous either rap songs or grime songs or documentaries like that the chapter on Cecil Morris is called Handsworth Songs which is a really famous documentary um, about Handsworth at the time so there was those things too but um, yeah I was definitely very intentional in wanting to make it like read like a story as well in its own miniature um, way and then to almost like peak and then kind of kind of at the end to then kind of crest into like a more open emotional ending and that was something I thought about as well and also definitely the big part of that also was um when you look at the chapter this is like the really geeky stuff that I enjoy doing I love it when you look at it essentially tell like the book tells the history of black people in the UK from from the Windrush to now and I wanted to reflect that in the chapter titles if that makes sense so like Handsworth songs um the first chapter the very first chapter is called Babylon so like that's like the entry point into Britain and then the very last chapter before the epilogue is called the Black Pound which it was named after Black Pound Day but that's all stuff that has been happening very recently um so it kind of takes you from that to that I think the first line in the book is like this is how first line of chapter one is like this is how they arrived here and then the very last line is um talking about people's the many green fields of home so it's like arriving to actually this place being home so that was like that was yeah there was a lot of like my own like very geeky <laughs> yeah stuff i enjoyed about yeah putting it together in that way even like as you mentioned the book started this is how they arrived here mm. but you also repeat that a few times in that section of the book mm. why was that repetition important for you what was like what were you trying to emphasize i think part of that i think part of that is like the fiction edge of reading fiction and just trying and just allowing myself to be creative with with how I write things in that way but I think it was also to be like um almost like a to very much emphasize like this is the beginning like there's some films or songs that enter with like a almost like a heartbeat like a so that's what I was like thinking of with like this is how they arrive here it's like like kind of grab your attention like that kind of thing was what I was thinking of um and that was like a lot of the reasoning for it is like to show that these are like the places that people eventually made homes out of but these were the experiences that people had when they f very first arrived here and you see even me reading some of that I was like quite shocked when I was reading yeah. about some of the experiences people had about a, even like adapting to the weather the homesickness like the depression that people felt and how people literally went like took gambles on their lives essentially on an unknown quantity um i think in obviously south london i talk about people sleeping in the clapham deep yeah level shelters was, i didn't know that was yeah thing. nor did i and that's like i was like searching like how did the black community in south london start and it led me to that that there were like a few hundred people that came off the first Windrush um, actual boat and they didn't have any housing lined up, didn't have a job lined up. So the government took them to um, these deep level shelters under Clapham Common, under Clapham South Tube Station. And that's where like in the war, people had been sheltering there from um, obviously the air raids and they'd kind of fallen into disuse, but they housed them there whilst they went to look for jobs at like the Brixton um, Labour Exchange. And then after they moved out into Brixton, into Clapham, and that's actually how the black community in Clapham started. So I wanted to like show things from the very 
essence of that, but that was always going to be a bit more jolted because it wasn't as um, built up as it is maybe today, if that makes sense. And in terms of like, the book and how you structured it, especially because you interview people from so many different places, mm. and I think that helps carry the book along and carry yeah, the reader yeah. along. How did you go about like, planning that and structuring the book? Yeah, that was the biggest headache. That, that was the biggest headache though, because I think I did over, obviously there's like maybe four, maybe seven or eight main people in the book, but I think I did over like 50 interviews. So I was trying to think like, how do I make this cohesive in a way that doesn't mean you're just getting lost in different things? That's why I read so much um, craft books about fiction, structuring fiction, structuring nonfiction. And the way I essentially looked at it was on, I think it was like three different levels. So there was the level of the region so what, what is the story of the region here? So it's split into three regions, South Wales, the West Midlands, South London. What is the e unique story that each region is telling here from beginning to end, if that makes sense? So as I say, in South London kind of looks at the history and legacy of the black community in South London from Windrush through to then African immigration through to today where all of those things are quite mixed up. In West Midlands, it looks at um, the story there is about them essentially building infrastructure in the city for their creative industries uh, for their music industries um, and for their communities and i think wells was essentially like trying to form a sense of identity essentially around music in a way where i guess welsh identity and rap had been like kind of people did weren't necessarily even thinking of wells and that was like a, the job a lot of the musicians took on so that was like on a regional level i looked at the stories then on the individual levels, um, I looked at the stories too, like what is each individual's life story saying? And then kind of had like loads of different like papers where I'd sketch those, all of those different things out. Um, and then kind of then would try and fit them in uh, thematically, if that makes sense. And then overall on a whole, it was like, okay, I wanted to tell a story about the dawn, the rise, and then like the blossoming of British rap music. So it was like having those three things in mind. Um, and then splitting it into sections, into five. I did, it was like a five act structure. So splitting it into five different acts um, in that sense. But yeah, it was a lot of like writing, scribbling on paper, like trying to bring it out of my mind and see like, how does this actually make sense on on paper, which was good for, yeah, it was, it was like intense. It was fun, I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, that was like probably the most difficult part, I would definitely say. And then I think also like was, I always think with like a story, there's like, um, it's like, I kind of almost think of it like an iceberg. Like there's like the tip of the iceberg that you can see that you want the reader to see, but then under it is where the main chunk of like the actual story and the movement is happening. It's kind of like the stuff that you're, the real meaning, the messages of the book that you're then slipping in. So as all of that stuff I just spoke about is more like the iceberg, tip of the iceberg, but then the things I really wanted to communicate was about family, like loss, grief, all of these human emotions and experiences that we go through and was to really explore like what is the human condition in modern Britain. That is essentially like what I wanted to set out and answer through all of these different stories. Like what does it mean to be alive today, like in this country? And that was going to be in like kind of the bit I was, I was never going to explicitly tell you that, but I was just going to try and show you through all of the other bits. What excites you the most about long form writing? Oh, I think it's this, the space and the time. I think that was a big thing going from journalism to a book was you see like it's so different because in journalism you had like the deadlines are so quick. A long form piece in journalism might be 4,000 words if, if you're doing like a really long read piece, say like the Guardian long read, but or if it's a feature, it might be 1,200 words. You're trying to convey a piece of information to a reader and depending on the platform, if you're writing for the Guardian, they have such a broad readership that this information needs to be understandable to someone living in Cornwall as much as it is to someone living in Camberwell, if that makes sense. Um, so there's like a very specific style you have to do to be able to achieve that. And that's like a very big skill and art in itself to be able to do. But with a book, it's like, yes, you want to convey information, but you have like all of this space to do all of these other things too. And I think like, that's probably what I found most liberating about it was the space to even really explore my self as a writer, I think was a really enjoyable process. And as I was saying about bringing all of these different stories into one place was something I really enjoyed. I think also, I remember like with the first sit down I had with my editor, after I handed her like the first few chapters and then I'm used to like in journalism <laughs> where I've got like got quite like a try to write that like quite vividly 
I'm used to in journalism, it's a bit of a battle to be like, we've only got a thousand two hundred yeah. words here. Can you cut this? Cut this like, you can you cut this down? Whereas I was kind of bracing myself for that because I was just used to that so much. And then she was like, I remember the first thing she said to me was like go even further with your writing, and push it as much as you want. If anything, like if it's too much, we can just cut it down in the edit. I would go and spend like seven hours with someone and just go with them throughout their day. And then, so we're not, I don't need to go with any questions prepared. We're just talking from the start of the day to the end of the day. And we talk about everything in that time um, about their lives and being able to do that over and over again, probably was one of the most rewarding things because I feel like I just got to learn about so many different people and really understand different so many different people and like where they live. So I think that was probably the other most fulfilling part about long form kind of writing in that way. Transcribing must have been Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got wow. sick of my own voice after a while. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm just imagining was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Another question I had was when it comes to your own writing, how would you say you discovered your writing voice? Mm. And even do you think it's changed or evolved since you've written this book? Yeah, I think the way I discovered it, it was, a lot of it was just reading. I think like someone's writing voice is essentially just an amalgamation of a lot of other different writers and influences. So I think there's also, I always had like a music influence from people like Kano, Potter Paper, Little, um, Loyal Kana, like most Def, uh, Nas, I feel like, that kind of poetic style of rap, I think naturally filtered down into my writing process a little bit. So when I'd even show early versions of the book or early versions of writing to people, I'd always get told, like, oh, there's kind of a musical quality to the way that you write. So I feel like that was there. But then I think also was just A, like reading, I almost call it like a writer's family tree. So like when I'd find a writer that I'd like, there's this uh, journalist called uh, Gaetalis. He's an American, Italian-American journalist. And he's like one of the goats of like narrative nonfiction and profile writing. But then when I was like read his, I was like, oh snap, like there's something about the rhythm, his words that resonates with me a lot. So then I'd just go and read all of his interviews to see who his favorite writers were. Essentially, then I'd go and read all of their work mm. and then I'd find out who their favorite writers were. Then I'd go and read all their work. So then I found like maybe six or seven writers whose like rhythm of writing just strikes a chord with me. And then I would just pour over their work continuously, continuously, and then go and read, like listen to all of their interviews, um, read all of their interviews and see who their favorite writers were. And then I think also then just on a, like a technical element as well would be, I started doing this thing called tracing, which was um, essentially I'd write out with some of those writers, I would just write out their books from start to finish or start, start writing them out start to finish. And then eventually it would be just, the phrases in those books that resonate with me the most or that are the best examples of that rhythm, I just take all of those. So from a 200 page book that then might come to 15 pages and I just write all of those out like just every day, every day, every day. So I did that like legit every day for about three or four years. And then, so I was writing these six or seven writers out. And then from there I was like, okay, I like when they do this. I don't like when they do that. I'll add my own style in here. And then I think that's just kind of what my style came out of was just like, yeah, like borrowing from all of these other different different people till I found like my own voice in that sense. Sorry, when you said tracing, do you mean that like, you get their books and you copy their books? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, I call it tracing. So it's like um, you're legit. So one of my favourite writers is um, Jacqueline Woodson. She's from New York. Um, and another is Joanne Didion. She's from California. Um, like a lot of American writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of American writers. A bit more fluid. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, f- I found that. Um, and then so with their books or essays, and I just type them out from start to finish. So that's when I say tracing. I mean that process of just like okay. copying their work over and over and over and over. And then I just did that with like seven or eight writers for. Yeah, for, for like four years. And I still do it now, but I just don't need to do it as much because I feel like I've found my voice. So like, I'll only do it like if I haven't written for a long time and I need to like get the motor going again. I think the big thing was like, le- just learning like how to fit words together and um, learning about like phrasing, learning about like tempo and then also learning about like, even like small stuff like variation, like short sentences to long sentences how is it okay to go long? Because I think there's so many rules you hear in writing about you should never, a sentence should never be this long or like you should never start a sentence with this. And then when you start reading a lot of these writers, you're like, they're just doing what they want. They're just, they're just freestyling essentially. Like they've clearly read the rules and then be like, okay, this rule doesn't make sense. So I think it almost kind of gives you a bravery as well to be like, okay, like these aren't, 
strict rigid traditional things you can branch out but then i think doing the tracing gives you like an understanding of like just how to put words together how to put paragraphs together how to open a paragraph and how to close a paragraph i think those kind of things were definitely a big part of it and then what words kind of can go next to each other or what words shouldn't and how you can vary those things to like make somebody feel something different as well i think was quite good and even just like um learning how to close out a book, if that makes sense, I think was a big thing in terms of seeing how how to change your tempo when you rise into a dramatic moment and then how to shift it when it's something a bit slower and a bit more emotional. What do you say, are there any like rules or methodologies that govern your writing now? I definitely always think about the story. That's definitely a, always a big thing. Like Even if it's a profile, I'm always thinking, what is the story that I'm trying to tell in this profile? And I think that structure is definitely like, I'm, yeah, like a religious planner and structure person. I know some people can just write off the whim, like write 200 words, 500 words without planning, but I'm always have to like plan everything meticulously. So I think that's still like a really big thing for me. I almost feel like structure is like, almost like the foundation of like the house, like you don't see it, but it just holds everything up. So I feel like that's um, like a big discipline of mine in terms of whenever I approach writing is like trying to think what is the story from beginning to end like what are we trying to carry through here um I, re I wrote a piece about the history of black football culture in South London um for the Guardian Long Read and it was in this book called A New Formation by my friend Callum and even in that I was thinking to myself that it was very the, probably like the most personal essay I'd written but I was trying to think to myself like what is the history of black football culture here? And what is my sp own specific story in this space? And then, then how can I show that in these different scenes and chapters? But the like spine and trunk, like kind of trunk of the story has to be taken us from almost the beginning of that to what now exists today. And we can go into different places whilst we do that, but really think about that. So I think that's always something I'm definitely looking at. And then I think also, the revising process, probably like my favorite part of writing is like really? once the first draft is done, then I can actually go in and um, like really play with the words and try and make them like find my rhythm and tempo in the writing. That's probably something I always hold sacred is to read it out loud after I've, after I've written it, read it out loud and print it out. And those are two things I always do, like print it out and then read it out loud to really feel like, is this piece working in the way that it should be? And you've mentioned that your interview with Adenugas is one of like the interviews that you hold dear. Mm. What you, would you say about that interview really spoke to you? Because I think it's it's cool when you write something and you yeah, learn something yeah, yeah. from it afterwards. So yeah, what was that process like? And what would you say you learned from that interview? Yeah, that was, yeah, I still hold that. I still, I still hold that very dear. I've got like a pictures from that interview like the photographer i didn't know he was taking pictures of us of me interviewing the family all five of them six of them um i think the thing i learned from that was i oh, there were so many things but one of them was hearing about um almost like hearing that story and history of um like west african communities in england essentially was like such a big thing and then be it being able to write that story and that story then going on like the front page of the front cover of the guardian was like i felt like ah oh, that, that's a real historic thing to put into british history in that way like that's always what i was wanting to do is to archive um like our stories and our history and to i felt like i was really able to do that with that story and um speaking to their parents was a big thing like hearing them talk about like nigeria so vividly and talk about like the civil war and what the civil war was like and then then come into England and then hearing so much of like my own family stories in like the stories that they were sharing, I think was a big thing because it was like that sense of connection. And then I felt like in writing this story, um, it of course is about them, but then it was also has a more universal feel because there's so many people have went through that when they were talking about like doing like some of the jobs they did when they get to England, like some of the cleaning jobs, working in a bowling alley, a bingo place, like all of these different things or things that I know like either my aunties or family friends had done as well. So um, I felt like I was not just writing that story, but I was writing the story of like a whole generation of people, but then being able to connect it to the children who then came after who are like British, African in that sense. So I feel like that was like such a big thing. And also I think just growing up as like, I'm like a huge skeptic. I'm a huge skeptic fan, a huge JME fan. So I feel like that was like a bucket list moment of, being able to interview people that I, whose music I've held dear. 
and we had like a Zoom, I'm not sure when, but a few years ago. Mm. And one of my things that I took away from our conversation was that you spoke about inside out writing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, could you explain what inside out writing is and why you use that form of writing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always, I would always think of nonfiction as like either inside out writing or outside in writing. I think there's journalism where you parachute into a place or you parachute into an artist's life for an afternoon or a day or whatever it is. And you're very much talking about it from the perspective of being from the margins and watching this thing unfold. Um, and it's like great journalism that does that. Um, you look at like some of the classic like sports journalism or even like war reporting and stuff like that. Some of that does that, like people go to a place and they're watching it unfold at that time. But inside out writing is almost the opposite. It's like you kind of embed yourself in a place where it might not be that dramatic, but you go grow to understand someone so much or understand a thing so much that you are speaking about it from the presence of being rooted in that place or in that person's life or whatever that is and that's how i kind of see inside out writing is you're writing it from the core outwards if that makes sense and i feel like that's like how i try to approach my work in that sense the essay i was talking about on black football culture like i think that is like inside out right and i'm bringing it starts like in south london and it never leaves south london it, we don't go anywhere else um, and we then maybe touch on certain things, but it stays rooted there. And all of the stories are told through like the eyes or the lens of people who have experienced that football culture. So that's kind of like inside our writing, I would say. And what would you say is the, the best and the hardest part about being a black writer? Ooh, I think the best part is there is so much um, cultural history and not even just history so much culture to draw from um in your writing and i think naturally as well i think there's uh i think a lot of black writers have like a rhythm to their uh to their writing to our writing because of music being such a central part of like our lives and whatnot and our cultures and whatnot i think naturally like a lot of black writers just have a rhythm um which is quite beautiful to their writing and to our work which i love that part of it and there's so much tradition to draw on in writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, because especially when you talk about diaspora, like even that journey of like migration brings so many stories within it because everyone's story of migration is different, but there are common ties and commonalities between them. So I think being able to, it leaves such like a rich landscape to draw stories from, I think in that sense, which I think is quite beautiful. Um, I think the hardest part, um, what was the hardest part of being a black writer? be that's interesting i've never thought about that um i think if you're obviously with journalism journalism is obviously like a very white space yeah. <laughs> so even trying to make people understand that these stories are valid and worthy of being told i think is a big thing i think also a hard thing being a black journalist i would say is the sensitivity you have to approach every story with because there's obviously whatever you're writing especially if you're writing a story that pertains to like your blackness or the black community or, or something like that there's going to be an element where this leaves your hands down it goes to not even your editors it goes beyond them to sub editors copy editors and there's small things that can be changed within that that make a huge difference to a meaning in a piece if that makes sense which might totally change the meaning of something in a really bad or negative way and I think it's like having to juggle those things I think can be quite difficult at times and that's something I've definitely gone through in my career is like fighting to make sure like now this was said like this for a very <laughs> specific reason and then if you change that or if you try and add to that like we're going into completely different territory here which may be damaging or may just not be what the piece is about and I also think is then yeah, right, there's actually quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I also think is um, trying to be able to make sure that there's like almost like a 360 degree of like our lives in writing and in journalism. Because I think sometimes, I guess like, that's why I think people have such an issue with like the black trauma stories, because it's like a very one dimensional look at the black experience, essentially. It's like we go through all of these other different emotions and experiences and I guess people want to see and feel heard and those kind of things too and I think when maybe sometimes you or the full totality of yourself isn't understood and people are viewing you through one specific way like there's only one specific type of story that's going to be told or deemed to have value in a space or be understood in a space and I think fighting for that can be difficult but I think it's important to do to show to show like the real um essence of who we are in all different shades 
of, of our lives and experiences. And if you had to give advice to other black writers, mm. what advice would you give them? I would say focus on trying to get good. I feel like there's so many realms for distraction. Obviously, we live in a... If, if you have social media, which most writers do, can be easy to get like swayed in different directions when you see different things happening or other writers are doing certain things and you're seeing that maybe having a lot of success and whatnot. So I think... There are so many different things that can kind of knock you, sway you from your path. But I think the most important thing is to just focus on trying to be the best like technical writer you can. Um, and a lot of stuff will follow from that. Because I think when you do that, I think inevitably like quality does shine through. Like people know when they see good writing and know when they identify with good writing. And if you can start to produce good writing consistently, I think that's probably going to land you in the best stead um, for your for your career. And I think also being, com this is two things, sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's also, um, I guess, being, understanding that um, with some of the stories you write, you have the expertise, like you have the, the knowledge of what you're writing about. Sometimes a lot of these things haven't been written about before or have barely been covered. So you know what you're talking about. Um, and I think that's quite important to know because I think sometimes in journalism, publishing, whatever it is that I think there can be like, if you're like a black writer and you're walking into a space where you may have been in a position where I don't have any family who were writers before or anything like that. I don't know anyone who was a newspaper editor or works in publishing. So you're going into these spaces and you can maybe feel like just by de facto of their experience, like what they have to say is necessarily right. And sometimes it is like they you'll get great advice, but sometimes it's like you're the one bringing the knowledge. Um, so it's not being afraid to like sit in that and sometimes stand up for that and say like, no, this is the way the story should be told or this is what needs to be included. And this maybe isn't what needs to be included because I've lived this, I've experienced it, or I just know so many people who have lived in it, experienced it too. So I think having that kind of confidence um, in those spaces, I think is very important. Have you got any examples of where you had to push? <laughs> I'm trying to think. What example can I give? Um, I've had a few examples in journalism. Um, it's more early on in my career where I guess people were asking, especially when it comes to music, as was, we were talking about how like the music is perceived. And I guess like asking looking at not looking at the musicians as as we're saying as people so just looking at them as like i guess asking about like ask them about violence or ask them about this and i'm like nah like this album has so much more depth to it like there's so much more that we can speak about here we don't need to pigeonhole them in like that direction so those are kind of some of the examples so those are some of the things that happened to me early on in my career is like people trying to steer you down a path because that's all they can see of what they believe like the music or the musician um to be but it's like also you know like these are people that are fathers or like their mothers like they have all these other rich um life experiences that they've been speaking about in their music that are just as valid as anything else that they've spoken about too and you mentioned in your first piece of advice about trying to become better technical writers mm. how can people become better technical writers I definitely think tracing helps me a lot. I would also say definitely reading, but I think reading widely as well. I think that's a really important thing because um, I think the biggest thing I've learned is from reading. I read like for this book, I read a lot of books that um, were completely so far away from this topic. Um, I was reading about like factories that communities where factories had closed down in like mid the mid American Midwest or reading about um, the slums in Delhi and stuff like that. And I think like reading that widely kind of just opens your mind up in a lot of ways um, to even how you can approach writing and what the different things that people are writing about. So I definitely say read, um, read widely, read outside of your experience as well. I think that's important because like there's this whole canon of literature there that sometimes if you don't grow up with literature, like I didn't grow up with literature, so all of these classics and stuff, I had no idea like about a lot, what a lot of them were. And some of them, I think like, you don't need to be intimidated by just because they're classics, but there's this whole other realm of books that I just didn't know existed. And being, starting to read some of those, I think has been very enriching as well, because I've learned, I've learned a lot about just my craft and then seeing something from a more zoomed out perspective, you're like, oh, like I can add this to what I'm trying to do here. So that's been quite good, I'd say.
It was such a pleasure hearing Neef talk about his love for writing and it's so evident in how he strives to become better at what he does. He puts in the hours and I think sometimes we forget that there's no shortcuts when it comes to any craft, including writing, because it's an art form. And yeah, we always hear people say, read more to become a better writer. But there's other technical things that Neef pointed out to us that can really help us all become better writers. Um, especially the thing he mentioned about tracing. I've never heard of that before. And I think I might actually give it a go and see the impact it has on my own writing. And if any of you guys try it, I would love to hear your own experiences and how you found it as well as a writing exercise. His new book, Where We Come From, is out now. I definitely recommend you guys getting it and reading it. And yes, follow us across all social media platforms at Black Prose Pod. And you can use the hashtag Black Prose Podcast if you would like to share your thoughts on this episode. And I'll catch you guys next time. Bye. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.